We're in Luke 5. And uh, as we go there, um, one of my favorite missionary biographies, my parents would give us missionary biographies as kids. And so one of my favorites was that of William Borden. I don't know if you know his name, but he was this, he was heir to a fortune, this wealthy Chicago family. And he was smart, he was handsome, he was social, he was fun-loving, he was driven, he was a natural-born leader. I mean, he had the world at his fingertips. So he put his faith in Jesus during his childhood and upon graduating high school in 1904, his parents gave him this wonderful gift of a chaperone trip around the world. (laughs) Extended trip around the world. So on this trip, young Borden developed this great burden for the world's hurting and lost people. He wrote home that he wanted to be a missionary. A friend reacted to that when he heard about it and said, you know, he's going to throw his life away if he does that. And Borden, hearing that, wrote in the back of his Bible, no reserves. Two words, no reserves. Returning home from his trip, he entered Yale University. His peers noticed that he was uniquely spiritually minded in a way they weren't. The president spoke at convocation, and at first what he said was good, saying you have to have a fixed purpose for life. And yet, all of a sudden, Borden realized he's told us we need a fixed purpose, but he hasn't told us what that purpose is. And then he soon lamented the, how humanistic philosophy had led to this morally weak and ruined lives, purposelessness, purposelessness lives of his fellow students. So that first semester, he asked a friend to start praying with him and reading the word with him every morning, just he and a friend. Other students noticed and they began to join them such that over the next few years, by the time he's a senior at Yale, some 1,000 of the 1,300 students at the university met in small groups once a week to read the Bible and pray together. It was a revival. And so in addition to reaching students for Jesus, he also, with his own money, started a mercy ministry in downtown Chicago and was often found caring for the poor, sharing the gospel, praying with them on the streets. And during his time at Yale, he developed this missionary desire, such that upon graduation, he resisted the offers of various high-paying jobs. I mean, he was a guy for it. And when he got those offers and said no, he wrote in the back of his Bible two more words. He wrote, no retreats. Well, he enrolled in Princeton Seminary, signed the Princeton Pledge, which the student volunteer movement was doing saying, we declare ourselves to be willing and desirous, God permitting, to go to the unevangelized portions of the world. Signed it. By graduation, he narrowed down where he wanted to go. He wanted to go to the Gansu province in China to evangelize Chinese Muslims. And so after giving, you know, in our dollars, millions of dollars away to foreign missions, he begins his his journey to China. But en route to China, he stops in Cairo, Egypt, because he needs to learn Arabic since he's going to minister to Muslims. But after four months in Egypt, he contracts spinal meningitis and he dies. And so the news was cabled back to the US and was carried in most of the newspapers. And many lamented this vibrant young man, what a waste. But Borden didn't think so. Prior to his death, he had already written two more words in the back of his Bible. 
he wrote, no regrets. It was just total commitment to Jesus, no reserves, no retreats, and no regrets. For him, it was up to his savior to use his surrendered life the way he thought best. He just wanted to give it to him. Well, our passage today is just wonderful. It's beautiful, sweet, riveting. It's a story that's unique to Luke. If you open to chapter five, you notice that your heading probably says something about calling disciples. And so this section moves to chapter six, verse 16. So if you move ahead, you'll notice in 6, 12 through 16, Jesus calls the 12 apostles. So you have this calling of Simon, James, John, and Andrew here in, in, in Luke five, but the official calling to be the apostles as a band takes place. So this section builds on the prior section in that from chapter four, verse 14, through the end of the chapter, we were spotlighting Jesus focused on Jesus and why he came. You remember his programmatic sermon. I was sent to preach good news to the poor, proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Like I'm here to bring release to whatever you got going on. It was a focus on Jesus in a general way, highlighting the, just the tremendous nature of his redeeming work. But now in addition to that, Luke moves forward and now he's not only spotlighting Jesus, but he's spotlighting how people respond to Jesus. How people respond to Jesus. So let's read this wonderful, wonderful section. We, all, we know about the catch, right, young people? The tremendous catch of fish. On one occasion, while the crowd was pressing in on him to hear the word of God, he was standing by the lake of Gennesaret and he saw two boats by the lake, but the fishermen had gone out of them and were washing their nets. Getting into one of the boats, which was Simon's, he asked him to put out a little from the land and he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And Simon answered, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. But at your word, I will let down the nets. And when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish and their nets were breaking. They signaled to their partners in the other boat to come and help them and they came and filled both the boats so that they began to sink. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees saying, depart from me for I am a sinful man, O Lord. For he and all who were with him were astonished at the catch of fish that they had taken. And so also were James and John, sons of Zebedee, who were partners with Simon. And Jesus said to Simon, do not be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. And when they had brought their boats to the land, they left everything and followed him. And the grass withers, flowers fade. And this good word endures forever. Amen. Let's pray that little illumination prayer together. 
It's a very famous prayer. Um, Thomas Cranmer wrote it years ago, 16th century. Blessed Lord, who calls the Holy Scriptures to be written for our learning, grant that we may hear them, read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest them, that by the patience and comfort of your Holy Word, we may embrace and ever hold fast the blessed hope of everlasting life that you have given us in our Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. So we're going to gather our text around four words. Four words, the crowds, the catch, the confession, and the call. Crowds, catch, confession, call. So about the crowds, verse 1 to 3. So Paul says, Paul the apostle later says, so faith comes from hearing, hearing by the word of God. Ordinarily, faith comes by hearing God's word. It's that important. And it's reflected here. So in verse Chapter 4, verse 43, you remember after healing untold numbers of people, Jesus spends a night in prayer, fellowshipping with his Father, and in prayer he renews the focal point of his mission, and he comes back to his apostles and says, I must preach the good news of the kingdom of God to the other towns as well, for I was sent for that purpose. That's the focal point of my purpose. They need the good news. So our passage, Jesus is teaching the word of God. And it's an important phrase for Luke. Jesus is going to teach the word of God, and then after Pentecost, the apostles are going to preach the word of God. It's the same gospel. So the crowds have come to hear Jesus preach God's word. This is God's word now interpreted around the centerpiece of God's Word, the heart of God's Word, the, the, the hero of God's Word is preaching God's Word. It's Christ. It's chapter 4, verse 21, when Jesus says, today this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Like, it all spoke of me, and I'm here, and I'm, I'm telling you what it means, my redeeming work in the world. And so the crowds are just pressing in on him. There's a lot of energy there, a lot of people. They're eager to hear Jesus teach the Word of God. They're hungry and thirsty for it. And we don't know yet how they're going to respond. What we know is that they're curious and they're interested. And they mirror for us, really, how you and I are to desire God's Word, that eagerness for it. They we desperately need to hear God's word more than good counsel from capable, prepared people, as helpful as that is. We need God to speak, God to speak in his word. So Jesus is not now preaching in a synagogue, he's now beside a lake, the lake of Gennesaret. It's the same as the Sea of Galilee in the other gospels. He's not just tied to the ordinary place of preaching, nor to the expected crowd to whom to preach. He goes out to the people who are eager for the word of God. And when the crowd gets too large, so they press in on him, actually crushing him, squeezing him, jostling him, he finds his friend Simon. And he gets into Simon's boat, and he asks Simon to push out a bit from the land. 
And then he sits down, teachers sat down in that culture, and he teaches the people from the boat. And we see Jesus' wisdom. He figures it out. It's more comfortable, he can see the people better, and it helps with the acoustics. It's just wise. Jesus can make anything into a pulpit. He's highly flexible in the manner of getting to people, which is very encouraging for us when we pray for people we're concerned about. He's very flexible to go out. He converts Peter's boat into a pulpit in order to throw the net of the gospel over these teeming multitudes of people. You just gotta love it. Well, then there's the catch, verse four to seven. So after Jesus gets through teaching and the crowds start to disperse, he says this to Simon. He says, Simon, put out into the deep and let down your nets for a catch. And now again, Simon and Jesus are friends. They know each other. You know, the apostle John in his gospel says that Andrew saw Jesus get baptized by John the Baptist, went and got Simon, his brother, and they went and followed Jesus at that point. Peter, Jesus looked at Simon and says, your name is Peter. Like he called him a while back. Several months ago, he made an initial call over him, and then Simon Peter followed Jesus around in Judea in an early ministry before they got to Galilee. Furthermore, Mark tells us that Jesus walked by the Sea of Galilee and he called him again. That might be a different episode there too. Furthermore, Luke has already said that Jesus had a Sabbath lunch in Simon's house and he healed Simon's mother-in-law. So they know each other. It's not out of the blue that he enters Simon's boat and tells him to go out to the deep. It just shows us that Jesus's ordinary way of working, and you know this, is he goes in stages, he goes in parts, he deepens his call upon your life. It's incremental. You know that in your life, times, that you felt you took a step, you know in faith that you hadn't done earlier, a new way, the gospel came home. We see that played out with Peter. And so, however, this is the first time we see Jesus ask Simon to do anything. So he's asked a favor of Simon, one to preach in his boat, then to go out. Again, Jesus is wise. He asks for help to deepen Simon's involvement. You know, Jesus asks us to be involved, and it's for our good to deepen our involvement. But furthermore, after Simon has lent Jesus his boat to be a pulpit, Jesus asks him to go to the deep waters because Jesus knows he's about to do him a favor. He wants to do something good for Simon, as Simon's done a good gesture to him. That's encouraging. So Jesus directs Simon to put out into the deep and let the nets down for a catch. And if we, if we pause a minute, we know that Simon right here is conflicted. Like he's wrestling. There's a lot going on and in a brief period of mo- in a brief moment in Simon's mind and heart. It's this battle of faith, this battle of commitment. So he says to Jesus, Master, we toiled all night and took nothing. There's a lot behind that. One commentator, Wilcox, says it this way, as long as Simon's boat is being used for a pulpit, the owner has no objection to Jesus's saying in it what he likes. But when it reverts to being a fishing boat, it is Simon's once more. And Jesus no longer has a say in how it is to be used. The 
The idea is, look, Jesus, you can talk about those spiritual things in my boat and making your pulpit. That's good. I'm all about that. But like, don't be getting in my boat and telling me how to run my business. It's a different step that Jesus takes here. He's treading on his toes here. You see, Jesus is a carpenter from the mountains. What does he know? (laughs) Peter's a fisherman on the lake of Gennesaret. This is home turf. Like, why are you going to say this? Like, you're presuming to know my trade better than I do. Like, stay in your camp. I've got this one. You see, you and I can view Jesus the same way, can't we? Jesus is very helpful when it comes to the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. Extraordinarily helpful. Those spiritual things are very important, but but stay in your compartment. Like, this is the real world. These are pressures that I don't know that you can really, I mean, from where you came from, I don't know if you can, like, help me under these circumstances. Like, you don't know about being a mother and all that's involved in being a mother or father. How about being a student at THS? Like, you don't know what that's like? You don't know about banking? You don't know about putting a plumbing system into a big building. You don't know about engineering or running a board meeting. What my business is like. What it's like to do like scientifically research medicine. Like you don't have to do that. Stay in your compartment. You don't know what it's like to be me and the traumas and the difficulties that I have gone through. You just didn't have to do that. Or just life in the 21st century. Like, how could you even conceive of that? Jesus is meddling in what Simon knows best. You know, that's Simon's bread and butter and he's meddling into it. You see, Jesus is purposefully pushing Simon to see that he knows best and that he must speak into all areas of his life. And that's a huge lesson for us. And just see that what Jesus asks Simon to do is insensitive and it's unreasonable. So it's insensitive, why? Well, because Simon and Andrew and their crew, they're in one boat, James and John and their crew, they're in another boat, they have fished all night long and they're exhausted. All they wanna do is, is wash their nets, go home, eat some breakfast and go to bed and get ready for the next night's work. I mean, they're weary, frustrated, and like it's been fruitless. Like it's, it's, they just want to go home. It's insensitive. And it's unreasonable because all the fishermen knew that the fishing was best in the dark of night, not the brightness of day. And if you did fish in the day, you used a whole different kind of net. You used this net called a casting net, which was used in shallow water. You didn't use this deep drag net that was only used in the deep water. So Jesus commands Simon to go out to an unlikely place at an unlikely time. And worse, so soon after they had already struck out. And so Jesus says, let your nets down for a catch. And Peter's saying, well, I'll let them down, but good luck for a catch. 
And you see, we can hear Jesus's command in our lives in the same way. Like Jesus isn't sensitive. And this is unreasonable. Like, are you really gonna ask me to do that? Like, don't I have enough on my plate? This is, this is going too far. Uh, we hear Jesus' word and we respond, I'm gonna stay on the shoreline. Maybe I'll stay in the shallows, but I'm not going to deep waters. Like, I'm not doing that. It's unreasonable and insensitive. I'm not going to the deep waters with you. I'm staying on the shoreline. I need to be able to see how this plays out. And so Simon is wrestling. We know he's wrestling. We, we, we so identify with Simon, but he doesn't give into that. And we know his faith is gonna win out already when he says, master, we fished all night long. I mean, that's a word unique to Luke. He's the only one that uses this word. It means commander, leader, even boss. Like Peter who runs a ship, or runs a boat, calls Jesus the boss. It's somebody you submit to. So Peter says, but at your word, I will let down the nets. I'm tired, I'm hungry, I'm frustrated. I've already washed the nets and your command seems senseless and honestly, you're gonna make me look foolish. Everybody's watching. (laughs) And furthermore, it's an imposition to my men. If I do this, it means they have to do this. But I know you, I know what you can do, so I'm gonna obey you. I'm gonna obey you. Huge step of faith and commitment, huge. That one decision is huge. It's like, I don't get it, but I'm going to trust you. And notice he says, at your word, at your word. That word of God, at your word. The most important thing in life, we know, that, that makes our life worth living, are things that Jesus has told us, like your sins are gonna be forgiven. And because I resurrected from the dead, you are gonna rise body and soul and be with me in glory. And if we can trust Jesus for the big things, can't we trust him for the lesser things? And Peter shows that we can. So Peter goes out to the deep, he obeys Jesus, he lets down the nets, and they catch such a large number of fish, the the nets start fraying and tearing. So they signal to James and John, they come over to help, they bring their boat, together they unload all these fish on the two boats. There's so many fish that even the boat starts sinking, like the water's getting up to the rim of the boat. And so what is Jesus proving here? (laughs) There's so much. I mean, he's proving that I love these small steps of faith. Like, I cherish your small steps of faith. I'm gonna do more than you will ever imagine through your little small step of faith. He's proving to him against all expectation that my word will hold true. It can be trusted. He's saying all appearances to the contrary. Jesus is saying, Simon, I know fishing better than you do. I know where the fish are, and I can even lead the fish to you. Like, I know your job better than you know your job. And if I can do this, I can do more significant things, which you're about to see in just a second. Also, Jesus is saying, look, I can meet your needs, and I can meet your family's needs, which, again, will become important in a minute. And he's saying, my grace isn't meager and just sufficient, it's overabounding and overflowing. Well, how about the confession? Verse eight to 10, first part of 10. 
so before this tremendous unheard of catch, Peter is like utterly undone and overwhelmed. And so he, he, he's in the boat and, he, and he, Jesus is sitting and he falls down at Jesus's knees, like he's falling on top of the fish at Jesus's knees. Like he doesn't know what else to do. He's just overwhelmed. He's seen Jesus do other amazing works. He's seen him cast out demons, you know, heal sick people. But this miracle gets to Peter in the way no other miracle could because Jesus does something right in what he holds most dear in the, the center of his calling, what he's about. It, 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 it arrives to his heart in this poignant, powerful way. Right in what Peter knows what's best. It's like when we came, you know, we've experienced that, something we hold very dear. And Jesus, beyond our expectation, entered right there and worked some things out. Now I remember when we came back from Peru, we hadn't looked at our retirement account. And our, we have a dear brother who's our financial advisor. He met with us. We were in the dark and we're sitting there with him and he looks at us and just starts crying. I go, oh my word, what happened? But he's crying with joy because it was just after 2008. A lot of folks had taken a hit. He said, you, you didn't. Like, you went up. And it overwhelmed him because at the heart of what he wanted to do, and he so wanted to do a good job, that he saw God's hand at work. But you, you've seen this in the center of your calling. It, it, it goes deep with Simon Peter. So at this point, Simon's looking at this and he goes, Simon realizes Jesus is Lord of the fish. Like Psalm 104 that we read in our call to worship, like, the teeming creatures in the ocean are yours, O oh Lord. Yahweh, Jesus is on the level of Yahweh. Yahweh created the fish and directs the fish. And Jesus did, did, just did that right in front of me. I'm in the presence of deity here, he realized. And he worships him, falls down at his knees. And so he looks at Jesus and goes, depart from me for I am a sinful man. O oh Lord, behind O oh Lord is Yahweh. It's a Job experience. I had heard of you with the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes have seen you. I repent in dust and ashes. It's an Isaiah 6 experience. You know, I'm undone. Oh, the kindness of the Lord leads us to repentance. That abounding grace leads Peter to deep repentance. I'm a sinner. Before a holy God, he recognizes his sin. It's the right reaction. He doesn't really want Jesus to leave him, but it's like... I can't be around your holiness. And some have wondered, wouldn't it have been a better exclamation to have said, come nearer to me for I'm a sinner, O Lord. Come nearer. I mean, doesn't Jesus say, I came not for the righteous, but for the unrighteous? Wouldn't that have been better? You know, and Peter needs to get there. But what Peter shows us is before we will ever appreciate the abounding grace of God, and not just take it in stride, like somehow we deserve it. We have to be here to know that we have no claim on anything from God because we are sinners before a holy God. We've got to, we've got to pass through this before we'll ever appreciate, believe, the undeserved favor of God for sinners. If you pass through a 
time like that, when you would say in your heart, I, I, am, I don't deserve anything. The gospel comes out at that point. Well, how about the call, 10 and 11? So Jesus has told, uh, Peter has told Jesus to depart from him, and yet far from departing from Simon Peter, Jesus moves closer. And that's what he does. He moves closer to sinners. He actually calls Simon and Andrew and James in a deeper way. First, he says, don't be afraid. You're a sinner, but don't be afraid. I mean, it's this word of comfort that God and angels say when he appears to people, and people are overwhelmed. And yet here, in light of what Peter's just said, it's actually also a declaration of forgiveness. Like, you're confessing you're a sinner, I'm moving towards you with forgiveness, Simon. Second, he says, from now on, you will be catching men. It's this prophecy that has the effect of a command. And so Jesus moves towards Simon by involving him more in his mission to save sinners. Jesus includes sinners in the task of saving sinners, caught fish to help other fish. And so that phrase from now on marks a new stage in Simon's discipleship. Again, Jesus moves in stages with us. It's life-changing, however. It makes a big step. And the form of the verb in- indicates it's gonna be this ongoing process, this continual process. You will be catching men. And it's literally, you will be taking men alive. You will be catching men alive. That's the verb. He's devoted himself to catching fish to kill them. Now he's gonna devote himself to catching men, women, boys, and girls to give them life, new life. So far, it's been dangerous for the fish, and now it's gonna be dangerous for himself. He's committing himself to a life of evangelism and discipleship, to give life to people, to co-labor with Jesus. And now that abundant catch of fish makes even more sense. Jesus calls Simon to the task of evangelizing the world, and that entails this outpouring of grace, and Jesus is picturing that for Simon. It's not gonna be just a few people that are saved. It's gonna be this unprecedented number. And now you see what the teeming multitudes were pictured by the fish that gathered around Jesus. Or imagine Simon Peter in Acts 2 at Pentecost and the Spirit descends upon him and this little group of preachers preach in Jerusalem with all these people around. And people look at him and goes, brothers, what do we do? And he goes, oh yeah, the catch of fish. Thousands of folks are about to be converted. And Simon and the other disciples hear this word. They hear this word on their greatest catch in history, like what, it was fishing heaven. But they hear Jesus say, you're gonna be fishers of men and they leave everything and follow Jesus. Like how tough would that have been? Like I've just entered into fishing nirvana and you're gonna tell me to leave it all behind, but they leave it all behind. They found that which is greater. We could also think that Jesus probably provided for their families through that catch of fish. They leave it behind to be with Jesus and help him take men alive. And Jesus has built them up for us. Confidence in his word, capable hands, kind heart. He's the king. He's shown them that and they leave it all and follow him. It's their no reserves, no retreats, no regrets moment. It's their total commitment to Jesus moment. 
It's life-changing for these men. Does this mean that you and I leave all behind and follow Jesus? Does this mean we go to Cairo, Egypt, you know? It may, it could, it may. At least it needs to be on our plate. Like maybe we would talk to Jesus about it. It may mean that. You parents, it may mean that you look at your children and say, that may be a calling upon your life. We recognize that just as it was an imposition to the other fishermen for Peter to go out in the water, we know that it's tough on families. But it may be the case. But in any event, for most of us, maybe all of us, it probably means that we're going back to the bank. We're going back to the plumbing job, we're going back to our engineering, going back to the office, back to the boardroom, back to our sales meeting, back to our families, back to the kitchen. We're going back to where God has called us. We're going with this attitude, this disposition, no retreats, no reserves, no regrets. Like I'm Jesus's, I'm following all mentally. And I'm laboring where God has put me to take men alive, take my kids alive, take my neighbors alive. Are we staying in the shallows as a church? Are we staying in the shallows or on the shoreline as individuals? Are there ways that you can look at your life and say, I think, I'm, I think, I think the obstacles are too great and I'm gonna stay on the shoreline? Or do we need to be nudged out into the deep waters? What are ways we might need to? And you see, when, Peter, when Jesus says to Peter, don't fear, like you and I know that even better than Peter. Because we saw Jesus plunge down to the depths into the deep waters. The waves and breakers swept over him and he took the wrath of God's judgment on him in our place. We know the cross of Christ. We know how Jesus didn't say, I'm staying on the shoreline, I'm going to the deep because I want to rescue them from hell, death, and sin and resurrect in glory. And so just like Peter, even more so, we say, man, I'm leaving it all. I'm after you, I'm following you. You are more than capable, more than gracious for me to meet my needs with abounding grace. May it be the case more and more as God incrementally moves us step by step in his discipleship. God's people said, amen.